Welcome to the Brown County Hour. Coming to you from the legendary hills of Brown, where the plum purple haze, the one nature herself drapes over the hills and hollers, inspires local characters, artists, and nature lovers. It's as though the hills themselves conspire to create a beauty and culture in the heart of Indiana. Sit for a spell and hear the music. Tall tales. True stories. And current goings on. Brought to you by folks who still know how to sit by a fire in winter. And swim buck naked in summer. Welcome to episode 59 of the Brown County Hour. This is Vera Grubbs. And Dave Seastrom, along with the rest of the crew. Our musical guest this month is Hamilton Creek. We'll share some music they recorded in our studio and the conversation that we had with them. We have another tall tale from Rachel Perry, a nature segment with Jim Eagleman. Jeff Tryon shares his essay about poor folks, and Rick Fetig tells us how his children were named. My essay this month is about Unit 517 of the Civilian Conservation Corps, the Doug Yellowwood Lake in the 1930s, and we'll listen to an interview with Michael Jeffries, whose father, Alan, led that crew. In our first segment, we'll listen to our interview with bluegrass band Hamilton Creek, and Jeff Tryon shares his essay on poor folks. been treated to a, a marvelous in-studio performance from Hamilton Creek, who have been here before, and we've always enjoyed the, their music, but they've got a brand new CD out called Been a Long Journey. And so in celebration of that, uh, they've come back in and they've recorded several live tunes for us. And so I'm going to let them introduce themselves individually. So go ahead, gentlemen. Hi, I'm Neil Smith. I play guitar. And sing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Dan Harden. I play banjo and vocals. I'm Kevin Cox. I play mandolin. I sing just a little bit. <laughs> and I'm Frank Kellogg. I'm the bass player. And you didn't sing at all. No. He can sing, but it's hard to get him to do it. <laughs> they don't well, give me a mic. They won't give me a mic. <laughs> that's what it's like when you play with a group of guys, isn't it? <laughs> well, so tell us about this new CD. Where'd you record it? We recorded my brother Doug Harden. Uh-huh. He has a digital studio in his basement. He's had one for, I don't know, 10, 15 years. And so nepotism starts at home for you That's all. right, buddy. Good studio time. There you go. You know, and he's recorded quite a few guys, Frank Jones and a bunch of different people that he's done, Robbie Bowden and uh, Dave Denman and those. He's, he's done quite a few. So, And he knew bluegrass because we grew up playing together, so... He's the only one I really trusted to record us. 
Well, there you go. And uh, Now, Danny, I know you go way back in bluegrass, and you know all of the greats there from Bill Monroe. You want to talk about some of that a little bit? Well, I'm not the only one. Kevin knows a lot of them, too. His dad was up there, and Frank does, too. But Kevin's dad, Jack, was up there for, God, I don't know how many years. Uh, Close to 40 years, I think, he was there. So he played with all of the greats, too, then? He played with several of them, yeah. Well, it's still quite a fine festival, even though most of the yeah, mainstays. It's, it's still, it's still I, I consider it myself a kind of a one and only thing. It's, I had tapes of my father back through the years playing there, and, and uh, it was kind of a treat to know it was coming from the Brown County Jamboree Barn. It was a big deal. Well, it is a big deal, and it's right here in Brown County, which right. makes it even more special. You know, considering that Brown County didn't really make, you know, didn't get on the map until Bill Monroe decided to show Absolutely. up. Absolutely. Yeah, he bought it in 52, wasn't it, Kevin? 52 or 53. 52, yeah. and he uh, bought it from Francis Rund, and he had shows up there every Sunday after church about 1 o'clock, and that's where I cut my teeth, and I know where Kevin played there a bunch, yeah. and Neil too, and you, I don't know if you did, you did too, didn't you, Frank? No, I never did play you there. You didn't play there? But um, it was a real treat going there. You know, Bill's brother, Birch, ran it, and that's another story all in itself. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he's kind of famous, too. Yeah, yeah, he is. He is. Yeah, he is. But, uh, you know, he'd always say when he'd play up there, boy, you want me to play a fiddle tune with you? And we'd all look at each other like, that's Bill's brother. We have to let him. <laughs> you know, we have to let him. You know, he played Boston right. Boy. and It's like having a girlfriend boys. that sings, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> But, you know, best thing is, well, the reason why I wanted that on our cover, we, we talked about is, that's basically where us three, we started, you know, we started playing there. Well, you guys are true keepers of the flame. That's right, we are. Yeah. We are bluegrass boys. Absolutely. You know, but he, but it was, uh, to me, Bean Blossom was school bluegrass, and still is. Yeah. You know, the only bad thing about it is now all the first generation's gone. They're all passed away. Well, we're counting on you guys to keep yeah, that flame well, there's alive. there's a second generation in there, so. Yeah. But the first generation's gone. So, but that's where we, I got my inspiration to play, and that's why I still like playing. I love playing with these guys a whole lot. Whole lot. It makes me, we see I was smiling the whole well, time. Oh, absolutely. I can't help it. Picking and a grinning. Can't help it. <laughs> no denying it. You know. So, you guys play a regular gig. Where can we hear you? Every second Friday of the month, we play at the A. Martin Lodge at the restaurant up there, Little Jim Restaurant. <clears throat> they pay us and they feed us, and that's, they lose money on that part. <laughs> okay? <laughs> they lose money on that part. But uh, we play all over. You know, we've, we've done a lot of stuff for a couple things for traditional arts, of you know, with John Kay and... We do stuff down here at the Playhouse. Matter of fact, March the 4th, we're doing the Brown County Bluegrass Bash, and it's going to be us, Hamilton Creek, Blue Mafia, and Blue Collar Bluegrass. So that's that'll be a good thing. And we've opened for Barney Unleashed <laughs> for his Playhouse, and we did uh, the Brown County Award Show that one year. Uh-huh. You know, but we just, we just play. Basically, whoever shows us money is where we show up. Well, there you go. <laughs> Well, you sounded mighty fine tonight, gentlemen. And uh, so, if we if if you want to listen to these guys, 
we can go to your Facebook page and see where your next gig is going to be. Oh yeah, we keep I keep the schedule on there. Excellent. I try to get everybody informed. Sometimes I'm a little lax, but I I work on it. Hmm. It is the 21st century, and we're all kind yeah, of being drug in, kicking and screaming. Again, thank you so much for coming in, no, guys. We appreciate it. Excellent yeah. music, great time. Love having you come in. It's a real privilege to <laughs> be part of what you all do. Take this hammer, carry to the captain. Take this hammer, carry to the captain. Take this hammer, carry to the captain. Tell him I'm gone. Tell him I'm gone. If he asked you, was I laughing? If he asked you, was I? My Brown County with Jeff Tryon. The more I thought about what really makes Brown County Brown County, the more I began to realize how we each have our own particular Brown County. In a way, Brown County is what we each bring to it, what we find there for our own, what we each make of it. No one else sees it probably in the same exact way that I do. That's what makes it my Brown County. The haves and the have-nots. I believe it was Abe Martin who said, It's no crime to be poor, but it might as well be. In Brown County, it's always been the haves and the have-nots. Them that's got and them that struggle every day just to get by to the next day. When white settlers first started coming into what is now Brown County in 1820, the first people here were traders, but they were not wealthy. The first white man known to arrive was a German, Johann Schoonover, who lived for a short time on the creek in what is now Schooner Valley to trade with the Indians. Also that year, William Elkins, the first pioneer, built a log cabin and cleared land in what became Johnson Township. Ned David also arrived and squatted on land near Salt Creek. The fact that they squatted without paying to purchase a government claim tells us that they were not wealthy men. We know that Job Hamlin, a Revolutionary War veteran who came to northern Brown County a few years later, couldn't have had much to start with. 
Records show his Bartholomew homestead had been sold out from under him because he did not have the hard cash to stake a government claim, and the judgment in a lawsuit against him there stripped him of much of his household goods and farming implements. But not everyone was poor. Prominent families like the Taggarts, originally from southern Indiana and then of some prominence in Bartholomew County, came to the county in 1828 and quickly became one of the most influential and wealthiest families in Brown County. James Taggart was the first elected Brown County Sheriff. The family owned 2,000 acres and had the capital to develop it and to pursue other business opportunities. You see, some folks immigrated and had the money to file for government lands and naturally sought out the best ground, the broad and fertile Salt Creek Valley, for example, with relatively flat land that benefited from the natural deposits of topsoil rolling in off the hills with each rainfall. Other, less well-endowed pioneers squatted on lands because they could not afford to file for them, and they tended to go to the less desirable land because it was less likely to be bought out from under you by speculators after you had cleared it and made improvements. Unlike the prosperous bottomland farmers, many early Brown Countyans scratched out a subsistence living, getting or making almost everything they needed from the forest. Food, clothing, homes, furnishings, medicines, and basic household goods like candles and soap. One practice of these early natives was to let their hogs run free in the woods to eat the abundant mast crop, hickory nuts, chestnuts, acorns, and so forth. In the fall, they would round them up, distinguishing their own hogs by a distinctive set of notches cut in their ear, and then fatten them up in a pen for a few weeks till the weather got cold enough for butchering. But in 1850, fencing laws were passed by the state, preventing pioneers from letting their hogs enjoy the open range. This had the effect of making a tremendous difference between bottomland farms and hilltop farms. Also, meat packers began to think of the wild lard as inferior and wouldn't buy it, so the Brown County hog market collapsed. By 1850, a third of the families in Brown County had 60% of the county's wealth and 70% of the farm wealth, according to historian Sam Johnson. The economic gap began to widen, and that caused problems as time went on. A wider gap between those who had better farms and the hill people trying to scratch out a living. In the 1870s, steam-powered farm equipment began to become available, which greatly increased farm efficiency. But of course, only wealthy farmers had the capital to buy it. The Taggarts had a steam-threshing machine. By 1880, William Taggart held farm property worth $18,000 at a time when hill people had an average net worth of about $800, according to Johnson. William Taggart was a blacksmith, a wagon maker, ran a sawmill, had a country store down where the Hobnob is now, and he was widely considered to be the richest family in Brown County. Then came the logging boom that nearly denuded Brown County of trees, left ecological and economic disaster in its wake, and led to the outmigration of a huge percentage of the population. In 1890, Brown County's population hit a high of 10,308 people, which it would not see again until 1980. By 1930, only 5,168 people lived in Brown County. The 1930s also brought the Great Depression to a county that had still not really recovered from the economic depression of 1893. Economic hard times were especially hard in Brown County, where it is said that people were so poor that when the Great Depression came, they hardly even noticed. Most Brown Countyans struggled mightily to keep body and soul together. Some issues of the Brown County newspaper in the 1880s and 1890s were entirely devoted to tax-delinquent properties. 
Brown County began to have what we might call systemic economic problems due largely to the decline in logging and the subsequent outmigration of settlers. By 1900, Brown County was considered the poorest, most isolated, most backward county in Indiana. No roads, railroads, water, not much agriculture. Although about 30% of the land was capable of being farmed, only about 15 to 20% was actually farmed. This is why humorous Ken Hubbard chose to move his newly minted hillbilly character, Abe Martin, to Brown County. It was the most remote, impoverished, and backwoods place anybody in Indianapolis had ever heard of. That's why it's funny when he declared, it's some traveling to get to Brown County, because everybody knew that was nowhere. But there were some people who did fine. Some even who were able to benefit from the harsh economic reality of foreclosures on mortgages and the seizure of lands for non-payment of taxes, amassing huge land holdings. Some of the more well-off benefited, while their poorer neighbors struggled and suffered. Somewhere in the early part of the 20th century, as the artists began to arrive and transform the backward rural county into a nationally known artist colony, Wealthy people from Indianapolis and elsewhere begin to purchase land in Brown County for summer homes and hunting lodges, beginning out around Jackson Branch Road, conveniently located between Nashville, the county seat, and Helmsburg, where the railroad had arrived in the early 1900s, connecting the isolated county with the greater world beyond. The push to convert mostly abandoned and damaged lands in Brown County to state-owned hunting preserves, state forests, and eventually Brown County State Park also left Brown County impoverished in a different and enduring way. By permanently taking huge portions of land off of the county tax rolls, the state hamstrung Brown County's tax base forever, ensuring that the local government would never be able to raise the kind of revenues or provide the amount and quality of services that neighboring counties enjoyed. Yet the state received, and continues to receive to this day, huge windfalls of revenues from these lands which it does not share with Brown County in any way. Whether by individuals or by the state government, the result is the same, haves and have-nots. Because of the experience of the Great Depression and the political salvation of Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal, Brown County was a bastion for the Democratic Party well into the 1970s. Then that began to change, not because native Brown Countyans changed their political views, but because of a new in-migration of people from elsewhere with other political views. Retirees and workers willing to make a long commute in exchange for living in the hills of Brown began to change the demographic landscape. But this, once again, was a case of the haves and the have-nots. Good-paying jobs are hard to come by in Brown County, and the average income is lower than in other, more urbanized counties in which commuters might find higher-paying jobs. Retirees worked their whole careers in places like Chicago and Cincinnati, where salaries were relatively higher. Often they sold their homes in these urban areas at great profit after their working years had passed. And then they came to Brown County, where they were very affluent compared with people who had spent their entire working careers here, and where real estate and homes were relatively cheaper by comparison. So now there are again the haves and the have-nots. People who have retired here from more affluent cities and People who commute to higher-paying jobs in Indianapolis, Bloomington, and Columbus have much greater economic empowerment than people who have always tried to scrap out a living here somehow, usually because they had become attached to Brown County by generations of family and social connections. Now you have in Brown County a class of recently arrived, well-heeled urbanites eager to impose their views, their politics, and their lifestyles onto Indiana's most beautiful county.
And for the life of them, they can't, can't understand what all these poor people are doing hanging around, clogging up their little dream retirement or upscale, citified lifestyle. But we've always been here. We aren't the economic winners, not the big landowners who could afford a government land grant or the industrialists who took the trees and then moved on, not even the artists who captured the natural beauty on canvas and sold it in better-paying markets far from the trees and hills. We are the folks who have always been here, scratching out a living any way we can because we love to live in this place, and our people have been here since the beginning. So, Brown County has some of the fanciest mansions and estates you are likely to find anywhere, and it has hovels and shacks where the very poor desperately cling to life and limb by any means available. Sometimes, because of various actions and statements, I get the idea that some of the more well-off people now here in Brown County would be happier if the less well-off folks would disappear. Just go somewhere and never come back, I reckon. But we aren't going anywhere. I think it was Jesus Christ who said, the poor you have with you always. Now we pause for station identification. You are listening to the Brown County Hour on Volunteer Powered Community Radio, WFHB, at 100.7 in Brown County, 91.3 and 98.1 in Bloomington, 106.3 at Ellettsville, and online at WFHB.org. Support for WFHB and the Brown County Hour is brought to you by Plum Creek Antiques, located at the intersection of 135 and 45 in downtown Bean Blossom, where visitors can buy, sell, or trade most anything. More information is available by calling 812-988-6268. Segment two begins with Hamilton Creek tune, 99 Years. Dave Seastrom gives us an introduction into the Civilian Conservation Corps, which is followed by his interview with Michael Jeffries, whose father, Alan, led Unit 517 when they dug Yellowwood Lake in the 1930s, and we'll close with some firewood poems from Jim Eagleman.
In this month's show, we interviewed Michael Jeffries about his father. Alan Jeffries was the leader of Unit 517 of the Civilian Conservation Corps, and they were responsible for building Yellowwood Lake in Brown County in the 1930s. Five months after President Franklin Roosevelt established the CCC in 1933, Indiana had 4,200 men involved in 21 camps distributed across the state. There were camps in nine state forests, two state parks, and ten camps involved in erosion and flood control. Out of the eventual 56 units in Indiana, eight of them were comprised of African Americans. Curiously, all eight of the segregated units in Indiana were named 517. The CCC was established to ease the massive unemployment caused by the Great Depression. Originally, it was comprised of young men between the age of 18 and 25. The pay was $30 a month. $25 was sent back home, and the worker received $5 to spend as they wished. In some areas, there was an uproar about the potential disruption bringing in all of these strangers might cause the community. There were fears for their daughters and the possibility of drunkenness or civil unrest. Nothing like this ever happened. There was a story about a merchant complaining that the local economy didn't receive any benefit from all of this government spending. In response, the camp directors started paying the men in silver dollars. After the first month's pay was handed out, the director went to visit this complaining merchant and asked to see his cash drawer. It was full of silver dollars. Pretty soon, they realized everyone in the town was benefiting from this influx of much-needed cash. Alan Jeffries was hired to lead Unit 517 in Brown County because no one else was willing to work with African Americans. In the early 30s, it was likely that most people in Brown County had never seen a black man, and it was understood by the workers in the camp that they weren't welcome in Nashville. In response, they developed their own entertainment that included, amongst other things, a book club. The surprising truth is many of the workers in Unit 517 were well-educated at a time in Brown County's history when literacy rates would have been historically low. All of the work constructing Yellowwood Lake, the shelter house, and the current manager's residence was completed by hand. The lake was dug with horse-drawn scoop shovels, pickaxes, and other hand tools. They also made the shelters they lived in. When they did go to town, they went to Bloomington, which was considered a friendlier environment because of the university. There's no record of any trouble in the Brown County camp. But around the same time, a man named Marshall Carter, a black CCC worker stationed at a camp in northern Indiana, was shot in the chest while walking back to his barracks. He was taken to his camp and miraculously survived his wounds after receiving first aid. No one was ever charged in the crime. This and other events made it clear to the black workers that they weren't welcome in the communities where they worked. The experience of directing these workers had a profound impact on Mr. Jeffries. Having grown up in an all-white community, he had no knowledge of African Americans. His time as leader of Unit 517 informed him that these were good men who were trying to make their way in the world just like everyone else. 
As a consequence, he became a member of the NAACP and later became involved in the Civil Rights Movement. He went on to have an illustrious broadcasting career that included being the newscaster for WIBC in Indianapolis. Today, he's a member of the Indiana Broadcasters Hall of Fame. Brown County did not have a minority community in our past. When I moved here 40 years ago, I knew one black family. It's alleged that there were strong Ku Klux Klan ties here in the county, and at the time, the KKK was at its peak in Indiana. And this is undoubtedly true. Change does not come easy. But gradually over time, the complexion of the kids in our county had begun to reflect the changes we're seeing in society. And now we also have children of mixed race attending our schools. I could only imagine what it was like to work in Yellowwood CCC Camp 517. The evidence of their hard work is there for all to see, and many generations of Hoosiers have enjoyed fishing and boating on this beautiful lake. This show will air in February, the coldest, darkest month of the year. This is also the month when we celebrate love and romance on St. Valentine's Day. It occurs to me the inevitable interaction between boys and girls is always more powerful than past prejudice. Kids grow up and see the world, and some of them come home with children of mixed race. Everyone loves their grandbabies, and this is how barriers are broken down. If Alan Jeffries and his CCC camp were working here today, the members of Unit 517 would be welcome to come to town and spend their $5 anywhere they wanted. I also believe they would find plenty of friends amongst the locals who understand there's not that much difference between us and recognize that we're all in this together. This is Dave Seastrom. See you next time. So we have Michael Jeffries in the studio this evening, and first off, let me say, welcome to the studio, Michael. It's wonderful to meet you. Thank you for coming in. You're you're welcome. Thank you. Michael is here this evening to talk about an interesting historical event that took place in Brown County when the CCC was camped out at Yellowwood State Forest, and as I understand it, they actually built the lake there. Is that correct? They built most of the lakes. They started building the lakes in Brown County. Okay. State Park, and they built lakes in uh, in Morgan Monroe also. Okay. And actually, the first memory I have of realizing that my father worked for the CCC was we were taking a group of inner-city kids to camp in Morgan Monroe, and he said, be sure to tell the kids that the blacks built that lake. There you go, and that is the crux of the story, the fact that this camp and these workers were all African-American. And we're talking about the 1930s, during the heart of the Depression, there was no native black population in Brown County at that time. And I would venture that most people in Brown County had never even seen an African-American. It must have been a really unique situation. My father had seen an African-American, I believe, in the process of going to DePaul University, but there were very few blacks in Putnam County where he, he came from. And he went to DePaul. He graduated in 1933, and his first job was with the CCC as a foreman. And there were 20 or more foremen 
in Brown County State Park, and you can find pictures of the whole group together. So there, there were 20 or more crews that were working then? Yeah, yeah, various crews doing various jobs. The blacks, one camp, he said he got the job because no one else wanted it. And he was had a contract to be a foreman. He had a degree in English, which is really valuable if you're going to... Talk to people. <laughs> Which actually, you know, just just kidding. He always used to get that his English degree in English qualified him to do this job. Well, and he had a long career in broadcasting, also. He started out. His first job was maybe he got the job because his father was an extension agent and already worked for the government. He was degree from Purdue in the late 1800s and then became an agricultural extension agent. And they had a farm in Putnam County. It's probably a little bit of influence that he could actually get a job in during 1934. Jobs were hard to come by, particularly jobs that paid money that you could live on. His salary was $1,200 a year. There's stories about how with the CCC that the people that participated got paid $25 a month, and 20 of that went home, and five they got to keep and spend. So 1200 was a really good deal and a good job. Well, this was all part of Franklin Delano Roosevelt's plan to help the economy recover from the Great Depression. The CCC, or the Civilian Conservation Corps, played a, a pivotal role in all of that. So how many folks were at this camp? You know, I'm not sure. I, I think it, it, over 20, there was they, the site of the camp actually is, I'm told, is the current home of the superintendent. And th- that's really the only thing that's left of that camp. But that was there. And the building that I believe that Jim Allen lives in is the same house that my father lived in. And so, the, But the workers themselves, do they live in tents or do they build structures? It certainly has structures in, in the park, but I haven't seen any pictures of structures of the black camp. And it could have been tents by the winter of 1933, where there were pretty solid buildings, but they were look more like tents. <laughs> I'm assuming that they built this lake with uh, skid shovels and horses. Would that be correct? Yes. No, they had no mechanized anything, so it was all shovels, wheelbarrows, and, and skid shovels. There was one mention in the Historical Society files, brochure that was published at the camp, and there's a picture of two black men with shovels. The caption said, when the coloreds got here, the work got started. How long did it take them to to complete the lake? They spent several years on building the lakes in in there. The black workers seemed to do the hard part. Different people assigned different tasks, and some planted trees and some planted... Well, actually, the shelters in the park were created by the CCC workers also. So did they go into town at all? Did they have transportation? or? I understand they did go into Bloomington. most interesting thing my father told me about the camp was that he essentially got the job because none of the other foremen wanted to work with the black workers. And the theory at the time was that the blacks were going to create trouble. He was not familiar with any black community. He came from the country in outside of Rochdale, Indiana. And he said, though, it was the best experience of his life, a life-changing experience for him, because he realized that many of the blacks were very competent, were, had skills. There were teachers that had been lost, had lost their jobs. They had a literary club, and they had no problems my mother used to say she would run my sister down the roads. There were muddy roads, but workers would go to the other side of the street so that they didn't scare her. She said she wouldn't have been scared anyway because there was never any problems. She felt very safe there. 
your family lived at the camp? Yes, my mother and my, my sister. And he was there for a year, and then he was sent to Lake Wawasee to establish a black camp for the fish hatchery. It was, it was designed for specifically to be another black camp at Lake Wawasee. That's interesting. So he became like the black specialist then. Yeah, I guess so. He, in his life, he said it, it changed his life. He viewed blacks in a, in a different way. He realized that many of them were very extremely competent, highly educated in many cases, that there wasn't any reason to discriminate. And he, within his life, we went on from there to try to be active in in local communities. And he was actually one time on the board of the Indianapolis NAACP. So he became active in the civil rights movement as a a result of having this experience. And he made an effort to hire qualified black black number of people in Indianapolis that remember him well as being an advocate for blacks. That is a wonderful Mm -hmm. experience that he would meet black people for the first time, understand their humanity, and then for the rest of his life work to -hmm. help them. That's a neat story. That's how one experience can change your whole life. Exactly. Mold the personality. We were raised to be on on bias. Everybody has biases, I suppose, but we were raised to be open to... I, at one time, expressed some displeasure with what was going on in the community. I had to feel somewhat guilty for being white, and he, my father said, the pendulum has to swing the other way before it comes back to the middle. Well, this is a fascinating story about your father and this uh, unknown chapter of Brown County history. Did you ever get a chance to go to that camp as a little boy? Do you have memory of that? I have vague memories of... There you go. I have often fished at uh, Yellowwood Lake, and this next time I'm out there hiking and fishing, this is what I will be thinking about. This is a remarkable story, and I really appreciate your coming in and sharing it with us. I felt lucky I got to know my father as well as I did. He's a very interesting person. Bryan County's a, a special place, and it's friendlier than we thought it was going to be. It's, it's just it's a very positive experience. Well, we don't, we don't want to tell everybody that. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, Michael, thank you so much. This, is, this has been a fascinating story. Much has been written about the winter woodpile, fireplaces, heating with wood, our reverence for and dependence on wood, that I thought it would be appropriate to include a few poems about this topic for today's segment of Nature News. Hello, this is Jim Eagleman reporting for WHB-FM Radio, the Brown County Hour. A German poet, Everard Hinrichs, writes, The heft and feel of a well-worn handle, the sight of shavings that curl from a blade, the logs in the woodpile, the sentiment of huge beams in an old-fashioned house, the smell of fresh-cut timber, and the pungent fragrance of burning leaves, the crackling and kindling, and the hiss of burning logs, abundant to all the needs of man, how poor the world would be without wood. A lover of wood, trees, fine woodworking, furniture, even whittling, I have grown up with an intense admiration for the forested landscape. Is it because we get so much from trees that I make this statement? Do I see beauty, value, and indeed the very dependence of life that allows me to say this? Or is it some repressed love of the words poets use to remark about wood that I secretly crave? All of the above, creative writing is a skill the poets use to inspire us, even move us to action. And I love the poems about trees and wood and woodpiles and whittling and, well, you get the picture.
The most often recognized poem, one that many of us have had to memorize in schools, is by Joyce Kilmer. Do you remember this one? I think that I shall never see a poem as lovely as a tree. Robert Frost writes in his poem, The Woodpile, it was a cord of maple cut and split and piled and measured four by four by eight, and not another one like it I could see. No runner tracks in this year's snow looped near it, and it was older sure than this year's cutting or even last year's or the year before. The wood was gray and the bark warping off of it, the pile somewhat sunken. Clematis had wound strings round and around it like a bundle. What held it, though, on one side was a tree still growing, and on one side a stake and prop, these latter about to fall. I thought that only someone who lived in turning to fresh tasks could so forget his handiwork on which he spent himself the labor of his axe, and leave it there, far from a useful fireplace, to warm the frozen swamp as best it could with the slow, smokeless burning of decay. Frost composed this work in 1914, one of the many accounts of his ramblings about his home. Like Frost, I look at an old, nearby, forgotten firewood piled in my woods and think I'd better bring it in closer to the house to use. Soon it may not yield the BTUs I want, rather be reduced to punky soft and crumbling scraps. There are usually a few logs that rot and are worthless on the bottom of each pile I make, and I resign to know that they still did their job keeping the other logs up off the damp ground. Aldo Leopold, the often quoted scientist conservationist that I reference here on the Brown County Hour, remarked that, quote, he liked all trees, but he was in love with pines since he planted them with his family to curb soil erosion on his abused Sand County homestead in rural Wisconsin. He saw their value with a fibrous root system and whirl of branches every year as a remedy to hold the soil while the broadleaf trees reclaimed the land. The tall pines now grace this historic site, and nature lovers like us grab a few cones to take home. The scraggly pines on our Pennsylvania farmstead did the same job holding the soil, and last I visited I marveled how well they had grown taller than the oaks and hickories. My forester friends may call me a softy for putting poems of trees right up there with my love of the trees themselves. Not to worry, I can still be a lover of poetry and cite favorite poems of trees and have a tree farm sticker on my bumper. To me, it's all the same. Jim Eagleman, reporting for Nature News, the Brown County Hour, WFHB Radio. Thanks for listening. Now we pause for station identification. You are listening to the Brown County Hour on Volunteer Powered Community Radio, WFHB, at 100.7 in Brown County, 91.3 and 98.1 in Bloomington, 106.3 in Ellettsville, and online at WFHB.org. Support for WFHB and the Brown County Hour is brought to you by Plum Creek Antiques, located at the intersection of 135 and 45 in downtown Bean Blossom, where visitors can buy, sell, or trade most anything. More information is available by calling 812-988-6268. The final segment begins with another tall tale from Rachel Perry. Rick Fettig explains how his children were named and will finish with the Hamilton Creek tune, Blue Yodel. 
This is a story called Three Story Hill Road by Rachel Perry. It tickles me how things get twisted up and turned around over time, and the things you thought always were actually weren't. So I've made it my God-given duty to set things straight when I run across facts that are just plain wrong. And one of those things is the name of Three-Story Hill Road up on the north end of the county where everybody had to drive when the Morgantown Bridge was out last summer. The fact is that it was originally called Three-Story Road, and the hill wasn't shoved into the name until the three stories were long forgotten and the county snowplow driver got the idea that one of the hills out there was three stories high, like the stories in a city building. Common in the county, as everyone knows, are peculiar hill folk who live their lives in ways that suit them and don't give a hoot what anybody thinks. An old hermit woman lived in a ramshackle log cabin near the second curve in the lane that ran west of the main road just south of Fruitdale. Hilda could never remember who she told what whenever anybody took the trouble to stop by, and distant neighbors laughed about her wild reports. Her stories always had to do with snakes, and eventually it was pieced together that there were three stories, a fable, a cautionary tale, and perhaps a true story. Hilda often related the following tale, the origins from a time when actual Indians possibly roamed in Brown County woods. One early morning just after Halloween, a squirrel hunter walked along a forest path. Night temperatures had dipped just below freezing and fallen leaves crunched under his boots. The wood glowed with yellow okra and burnt orange. The man suddenly noticed a dark, patterned snake lying half-frozen across the trail. As he approached, the snake implored, "'Oh, Mr. Human, have pity on me. I can barely move from the cold. Please pick me up and bring me close to your warm skin.' "'How do I know you won't bite me, Mr. Snake?' the suspicious hunter frowned. Oh, I won't bite the hand that thaws me, the snake promised. So the hunter picked up the bored, stiff snake and tucked it under his jacket near his chest. Then he continued walking through the blushing trees. After shooting a squirrel or two, the hunter returned to his cabin. When he reached into his jacket to remove the snake, it bit him. Geez, the man yelped when he jumped back. You promised you wouldn't bite me. And you trusted a snake? asked the reptile as he glided away. Many people don't know that real snakes have no ears, and most snakes also see about as well as Mr. Magoo. I always wondered how the snakes sunning on my dock know when the neighborhood eagle is nearby. It turns out that, though they have no obvious noses, snakes can smell real good through their tongues. Hilda's second story was about a man, Clint, who was deathly afraid of snakes. His phobia was without reason and could not be soothed. Several years back, Clint drove along three-story road in his old Jeep, his shirt damp from sweat in the Indiana summer heat. He'd been out cutting firewood and thinking about the truth of the old saying about wood heating you up three times. When you cut the tree... 
when you split the logs, and when you finally burned it. Wind blew in the vehicle's open sides, cooling Clint's red face. Up ahead, he saw something in the road and slowed down. A red-tailed hawk clutched a snake in its talons and was desperately flapping its wings to gain elevation before the jeep was upon him. Just as Clint drew close, the hawk, in an effort to save his own scales, dropped the snake on the hood of Clint's car. There it was, a three-foot black snake writhing just in front of the windshield. Clint swerved his jeep in a panic to try to make the snake slide off. The vehicle careened out of control off the road, dropped over an embankment, and flipped over while crashing through bushes and trees. It finally landed in a creek bed, its spinning wheels slowing to a stop. Clint gingerly climbed out one side, his forehead bleeding from hitting the windshield. The terrified snake slithered into surrounding poison ivy, having avoided two close brushes with death. Although Hilda never had running water, the rural electric company came through sometime in the 50s and hooked up her little cabin. She enjoyed the luxuries of lights and a toaster oven. One evening, the lights in the kitchen went out, even though the porch light and the reading lamp by the wood stove still burned. Hilda had some common sense, and she checked the fuses, but everything seemed in order. The next morning, Hilda went out to the road and waited until a car came by. She flagged down her neighbor, Johnny Deckard. What seems to be the matter, Miss Hilda? Some of my lights won't work, and I need somebody to fix them. I'm on my way to work, but I'll stop by later on this evening, he promised. Hilda waited all day until Johnny came back, armed with a screwdriver. He removed the panel to the fuse box and jumped back in surprise. The electric wires were alive with movement as a large copperhead stirred, intertwined among them. Without pausing, Johnny stabbed the retreating snake with his screwdriver as it slid between the fuse box and outside wall. I took care of your problem, Johnny told Hilda, who rocked on the front veranda. There was a big snake wrapped around your electric wires. Hilda was amazed and told the story to anyone who visited for the next several months. But she had to tell the story out on her porch because the whole cabin stank all summer long from the dead snake between the walls. So these were the three stories Hilda told on Three Story Road until life got so hectic that storytelling became something that only obsessive historians indulge in. They call it oral history. When the Brown County Highway Department scraped together enough money to get a snow blade for the front of their dump truck, they installed a green sign with the augmented road name, Three Story Hill Road. And the stories got plowed under, you might say. It's February, the month of Valentine's Day, the month of love. A number of years ago, something became a part of my life that had a great resemblance to love. That's not the issue here, but the progeny from that union and the naming thereof the children is the subject. I am named after my mother and father. I have my mother's maiden name, Patrick, and my father's name that he went by, Thomas. My dad had an aunt named Pat, so that left me with Rick. My brother is named after his two grandfathers, Charles and William, and my sister is named after a great aunt, Barbara Jo. I tell people that I have three and a half kids. 
my three kids, and they have a half-brother that I took on as my own in his younger years. With all of my kids, it got down to the deadline, and they weren't going to let us out of the hospital until we had names for them. Their mother had predetermined names that, to me, came out of the blue. I figured that she had that right, so I took on the challenge of making each name meaningful. They were very nice names, Jesse, Riley, and Ellie. With Jesse, I had bought one of those little, at that time it was probably a quarter price for a book that you buy at the checkout line, and it had definitions of names. So I was sitting there in the hospital going through all these definitions and all this kind of stuff and found out that Jesse is a person of the Bible, and that name represents wealth. And then my wife's name was Alexandra, and Alexandra is Alexander, like Alexander the Great, a leader. So he became Jesse Alexander, a wealthy leader of men. My second son, she wanted to name Riley, which is a fine name, but it's like, where does that come from? And as my mind rambled around, it came upon James Whitcomb Riley. I thought, well, there's something to start with. And then as I thought and thought and thought, I came up with Hoagie Carmichael. So my second son's name is Riley Carmichael two particularly important and famous people from Indiana. And my daughter, she wanted to name her Ellie. Well, we had a friend whose wife's name was Elaine, and we had a stepsister whose name was Elaine. So we we abbreviated Elaine to Ellie, and then we had grandmothers on each end. Her grandmother was named Gracia, and my grandmother was named Gertrude Pearl. Now, I knew I wasn't going to get Gertrude. (laughs) I'm not sure I wanted to either, but that's a fine name also. So she is Gracia Elaine Pearl, which means God's precious gift of light. I'm not really sure how I will fare in the memory of my children, but I have given them something to live up to, their names.
Hi, friends. I would like to extend an invitation to you to join the Rally for the Trees that will take place this February 20th at the State Capitol Building in Indianapolis. This event begins at 11 a.m. and runs until 1.30 p.m. This is about forest preservation, and we're meeting to show our newly elected governor and the Indiana legislature how much Hoosiers care about our state forests. We would like to encourage you, your friends, and your family to attend a fun day of forest activism. There will be musicians, speakers, and even something to eat. If you've ever thought about doing something to help our forests, now is the time. For more information, go to our Facebook page and look for the link to the Indiana Forest Alliance. Thank you for your consideration. This show was produced by Chuck Wills, Pam Rader, Rick Fettig, Vera Grubbs, Carrie Ray, and Dave Seastrom. We would also like to thank Slats Klug for our theme music. You have been listening to the Brown County Hour. Coming to you from deep in the woods of Brown County, Indiana. Celebrating the arts, culture, and nature that make this such a unique community. Visit us online at browncountyhour.com. The Brown County Hour is a production of WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported community radio for South Central Indiana. Take me back, back to my home, Brown County. Oh